This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As Denver's population swells, some neighborhoods are changing faster than others. To understand why it's such a patchwork, it helps to go back to the 1930s when the federal government drew red lines on maps of Denver. They deemed certain parts of the city hazardous or definitely declining. And people in those neighborhoods, like Five Points and the Highlands, were denied mortgages. The practice hit African Americans, Latinos, and immigrants especially hard. And the effect of this redlining reverberates today. Megan Ariano and Erica Meltzer are reporters for Denverite, and they've looked into how redlining connects to gentrification today in the city. And welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Erica, before we dive into redlining, I want to start with a bigger question. Last week, you published a piece titled, What's So Bad About Gentrification Anyway? Uh, You asked many people this, and the question had actually come from one of your readers. What insight did you glean when you sort of turned the question of gentrification on its head? Well, what really struck me uh, and the people that I talked to was uh, the sense of community that was lost. These were er areas, I don't want at all to romanticize poverty or some of the other issues that existed in these neighborhoods. But for a lot of people that grew up there, it was almost like they lived in a small town with their entire extended family around them. And change is inevitable. But there's also and there's good things about change, but there's also a lot of pain in that loss. And I think a lot of that pain, as you find, is connected to displacement, that people are pushed out of a neighborhood where if they had their druthers, they would stay. Absolutely. And for the people who there are people who would like to live there that now can't and they used to have, you know, all their aunts and cousins right around the corner and now they're dispersed around the city or out into the suburbs. And for the people who still live there, there's a feeling of being a stranger in your own home that maybe you're looked at by a newcomer as someone who's not to be trusted, someone to be watched when you maybe go back 2, 3, 4, 5 generations in this neighborhood. We have heard, in fact, of displacement happening many times to families. So they might be displaced from an urban core neighborhood to a suburb to an exurb, that this is something that happens uh, repeatedly. What were some of the positive answers when you ask the question, what's so bad about gentrification anyway? Well, some of the people who who identified as gentrifiers um, – Said, felt that they were actually making the neighborhood more diverse, where it had been a segregated neighborhood, and they felt like gentrification um, is a process that can actually counter the segregation of the past. Um, one of the reasons um, these areas were disinvested is because of legal se- legal and de facto segregation of the past. And you know, there's also there's um, even people who grew up in these neighborhoods would say, you know, I do, I enjoy, um, there's a grocery store now, there's good walkability, there's good transit, and I enjoy all of these things, but it's painful to me because many of the people that I grew up with can't enjoy those things. This includes neighborhoods like the Highlands. This was known to many in previous iterations as Northside Denver. And in the 1930s, parts of the neighborhood were deemed too hazardous by the federal government to loan money to. People were denied mortgages. Uh, Recently, the city of Denver published a map that shows what neighborhoods have gentrified, and the Highlands is on there. And Megan, you wrote a piece last year that compares it 
to the redlining map I mentioned at the start from the 1930s. What do you find when you overlay those two? Yeah. uh, So in that study that you mentioned, Denver says that one of the indicators for gentrification is like historic disinvestment. And I think that it's pretty clear to see how that links up with redlining because that was a practice that, you know, in addition to not being able to get a home loan, it could impact your credit score living in one of these areas. Oh, wow. There's just a lot of ways that it it uh, reverberated outward and kind of depressed the level of of economic success that these neighborhoods could have. So I think what I'm hearing is that redlining in a way suppressed values in certain neighborhoods. That meant that they remained accessible, I suppose, uh, to folks as, as rentals, not for home ownership. And that those are now the neighborhoods whose values are increasing uh, more rapidly. Is that true when you look at the two maps, Megan? Sure. And one of the things that uh, the city of Denver has looked at is areas that are eligible to gentrify. And among the things that can contribute to eligible to gentrify is a high percentage of renter-occupied units. The idea being that renters are more easily the price of their living can go up quicker if your if your rent shoots up. What was behind redlining? What was the justification for doing that and and almost purposely blighting some neighborhoods? So it goes back to the 1930s. And at that point, the country was still in the throes of the Great Depression. And as part of the New Deal, uh, the government created something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. And so they were using that as a way to Uh, refinance mortgages that were in default because it's the Great Depression, right? So then all of a sudden you have the federal government in the business of of issuing and financing mortgages and they want to do it in a way that's systematic and that reflects like the lowest level of risk and the, the ideas and the like cultural ideas of the time meant that that was racist towards people of color. So this has, in some ways, um, good intentions, right? Uh, If these are taxpayer dollars being invested in people's mortgages, the idea is not to do that in overly risky places. But it had an absolutely racist, classist overtone. Well, and I think I want to be careful about using the notion of good intentions. Uh It it was pretty explicitly racist. Um, If you go uh, we got these maps from uh, Mapping Inequality, which was an academic project that helped make all these redlining maps available. Across the country. Across the country. Yeah. You can go see any kind of city and overlay them. And you, there's notes in the areas where they didn't want to do mortgages that use terms like um, Negro intrusion or this used to be a good residential white area, but Negroes have started to move into the area. This was blatant. It was, it was very blatant. And I think – um, probably they would have justified it by saying that the values would go down, but it it reified that and ensured that it continued for many generations. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about how the practice of redlining, which began in the 1930s, reverberates today in Denver in neighborhoods that are most quickly gentrifying. My guests are Megan Ariano and Erica Meltzer, who have written about this for Denverite. And so this begins to change the practice of redlining, I believe, in the late 60s with the Fair Housing Act. Uh, But I I think it's safe to say that even, you know, decades on, this really does have a legacy in Denver today. 
Um, what neighborhoods does this touch? Uh, we mentioned Highlands. What else would you throw out? Uh, the Five Points area, what we think of the Five Points area today, which is another area where when you walk around, and I'm sure Eric can speak to this as well with additional stuff, but like when you when you walk around Five Points, you can tell that there has been an influx of development, that there's a set of buildings that maybe looks newer or different. Um, West Denver also is an area that uh, has links both between redlining and uh, gentrification, according to the city. I want to say that at CPRnews.org, we've linked to these two maps that you did the overlay of, Megan, and you can see for yourself, perhaps if you live in Denver, how your own neighborhood is affected. So back to some individual stories here, because in your piece, this question, what's so bad about gentrification anyway, Erica, uh, you set a scene outside of Little Man Ice Cream. This is in the Denver Highlands neighborhood. And there was a long line for ice cream as usual. And you are with Ambrose Cruz, a lifelong North Side resident. And Cruz said, I will never eat ice cream here. What What is behind that declaration? Well, the complex where Little Man Ice Cream is uh, was formerly the site of the Olinger Mortuary. And he recalled attending his first funeral there when he was 11 years old that was for um, a friend of his who was just 16 who had uh, died of a heart condition. And he, for him, it's offensive to have a place that was a site of death and mourning and community gathering be used for this somewhat, um, let's just go ahead and say frivolous mm. purpose. You know, he's not against happy things in life, but to him, that location has a special significance, and it's very difficult for him to see that repurposed in this way. When you asked people what's so bad about gentrification anyway, um, did they reflect on whether it was a resistance to change in general? Um, You know, I think change is hard in, in like any regard. Or did you hear something that was a bit more specific from some people? Well, for the people I talked to who were longtime multi-generational residents of these neighborhoods, a lot of them had a somewhat exasperated response to this question because for them it feels pretty clear. And the problem is not the change, it's who gets to enjoy that change. Mm. You know, okay, it has a good walkability score, but for whom was was the way this was reflected back to me. Or sure, it's nice to have bike lanes, but why didn't we have bike lanes 20 years ago when this neighborhood had a different demographic? Right, or so what if there's a grocery store if half of my family or friends aren't there to enjoy it? Yeah, it was very much this feeling of, of we don't, why don't we get to enjoy these things? You know, and for, you know, for other people, it's um, this feeling of excess, uh, Sid Quintana is uh, the uncle of Ambrose Cruz, and he was talking about how large swaths of North Denver were essentially rural when he was a child and that he's been watching Denver develop and change his whole life. But now it feels like excess, like, geez, you already have so much money. How much more money do you need that you're just building, 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 building? Back to this idea of redlining. I mean, in some ways, people have just really never been made whole from that loss of economic opportunity, Megan. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people today, 
your house, if you're fortunate enough to own one, is like the biggest asset you will have financially. And that is a very generational thing. That's been that's true now, but that's also been true in the past. Right. So if your family hasn't had the opportunity to own a home, then, you know, that that reverberates outward. Like if I wanted to go home and stay with my parents because I was trying some crazy new business venture, I could. Mm. Right. But if you don't have that type of asset, then that that just you don't have that literal opportunity to build wealth. But there's also other ways that it sort of is reflected. I see that speaks to the generationality, if you will, of this and why a practice that ended in the late 60s still has effects on Denver today. I guess I want to wrap up, Erica Meltzer, with a little bit of your own meditation on gentrification, which is that you live in the Baker neighborhood of Denver. This is a Denver central neighborhood. And you... You, you sort of confess to being a gentrifier. And what, what, what do you come to when you look at yourself in the mirror in this context? Oh, what do I come to when I look at myself in the mirror? Um, I wanted to be very transparent in this piece. I felt like it would be disingenuous to not uh, situate myself in the piece. And I was not one of the pioneering, gentrifying families, the neighborhood had substantially changed at the time that I moved there, but it's it's continued to change. And there's a lot of things, like I in, I'm not a wealthy person, but I enjoy occasionally going out to some of the nice restaurants on South Broadway. And I enjoy all the work that other people have done to um, renovate their houses and they look very beautiful. But I also... Already, just in the eight years that I've lived there, I miss some of the eccentricity that used to be there. There used to be a lot of band houses, and uh, band houses, band houses like band like houses where like large old Victorians that were carved up into a bunch of different apartments, uh-huh. and people who were in bands lived there, and um, and you could kind of tell they'd been partying at night, and it, there was just a little more eccentricity to the neighborhood, and I feel like it's becoming a little more generic. And it is possible then for a gentrifier to also. Uh, if you embrace that term, to also feel that loss of of weirdness, I suppose. Yeah. Embrace might not be the, the right word, but I feel like I need to reckon with it. Let's mm-hmm. say that. Thanks to both of you for sharing this reporting with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You heard from Erica Meltzer and Megan Ariano, reporters at Denverite. And we talked about their reporting on gentrification and redlining in Denver. You can see their work and the maps we talked about at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Wild horses are symbols of the American West, of freedom and wide open spaces. Yet more than a third of Mustangs don't actually live in the wild, and the growing herds cost taxpayers millions of dollars. These animals are caught in a naughty, bureaucratic meltdown over how to manage them. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Dave Phillips of Colorado Springs digs into this mythic history and the current battles in his new book, Wild Horse Country. And welcome back to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. You watched a wild horse roundup conducted by the Bureau of Land Management. You were told to stand in one spot, not move from it, and it gave you a pretty good idea of what a roundup is like. So taking these horses from the Wild West to somewhere else. We'll talk about where that somewhere else is in a bit. But what is a roundup like? They're highly controversial. Well, so this is what we've been doing for 40 years to try and keep wild horses 
population numbers stable. Uh, every year, um, in dozens of places around the West, we use helicopters to sort of sweep the desert and bring horses into a funnel-shaped pen where they, they then go into a corral and, and someone closes the gate and, and that's it. They go into sort of the, the bureaucratic system, which, which the federal government calls the, the quote-unquote holding system. The holding system. And are the horses terrified by this? Uh, it is um, something to see. I mean, it really is something out of a movie to see these horses galloping across the desert. I mean, you can imagine being chased like a helicopter by a helicopter. Anyone would be terrorized. But yeah, they they um, are chased for miles at top speed across the desert, and and oftentimes a lot of them are hurt by the time they get to the corrals. This can injure the horses. You write about uh, the presence of a Judas horse. This is a horse that's essentially trained to lead the other horses into the trap. Yeah, so we've been chasing, um, uh, we as Westerners have been chasing Mustangs for a really long time, even before the government got into the business. And and uh, Mustangers, as the cowboys who do, did this quickly learned, um, that if you had one tame horse who was trained to run into the trap, uh, it could sort of act as a leader to, to uh, lead the rest of the herd in and makes it a lot easier. Do some horses die in this process? Some, not many. Uh, actually, the the big uh, problem with with rounding up horses by helicopter is not that so many are died or injured. It's what the heck do you do with the horses afterwards? So we've spent about a billion dollars gathering wild horses over the decades. We're going to spend a billion more taking care of the ones that we gathered. And if we want to get down to a, a goal population uh, that's sustainable, we're going to have to spend a billion more to gather more. And we just can't sustain it. Okay. Well, well, let's talk about where the horses are shipped to in a moment. But I want to establish the contours of wild horse country first. This includes Colorado and uh, the the names of places where these wild horses roam speak in, in some ways to their desolation. Will you read a bit from the book that describes wild horse country? I'd love to. Uh, let me first say that Almost all of wild horse country is between the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada in the in the deserts of the Great Basin. Uh, it's a patchwork of sort of the unused areas that were left over after after the settlement of the West was done. So, the official government names of designated wild horse ranges in wild horse country give some taste of the landscape: granite, lava beds, slate range, high rock, rocky hills, red rock. Sand Canyon, Sand Basin, Sand Springs, Black Mountain, Bald Mountain, Dead Mountain. Just reading these names makes you thirsty. They are the names that map the history of people who came looking for something and found instead only what one gray-haired curator with dirty bifocals at a one-room roadside Nevada history museum described to me as nothing but miles and miles of miles and miles. (sighs) They are the names of want, failure, hideouts, last stands, and wind. Names that even the hardy homesteaders we learn about in school sized up and passed over. Stinking water, salt wells, rattlesnake, dog skin, cyclone rim, devil's garden, robber's roost, hard trigger, murderer's creek, dead man valley, confusion, Harvey's fear. It is not the land the horses chose. It is the land that was left to choose, hardscrabble islands of desiccated emptiness that herds were pushed onto, 
put together the patchwork where wild horses are found now in the West, and you have an area the size of Alabama and a population of humans near zero. My goodness. That landscape would make me think the horses are incredibly sickly and barely hanging on because there would be so little to subsist on. But you don't really find that when you witness the roundup. Well, that's exactly what I was warned about by by government wild horse managers, that, look, these horses are living on areas with no forage. They're, they're undernourished. We have to remove them. And yet, in, in almost every case where I've observed them personally, uh, these horses are, are beautiful. I mean, to, to I am a, admittedly a horse novice. But, but to the untrained eye, they are, they are healthy and vibrant and uh, certainly don't show a whole lot of, of signs of, of suffering. So does this mean that there's not widespread agreement that the populations are either out of control or unsustainable? Is there disagreement about the health of the wild horse and whether they need to be rounded up in this way? Man, in the wild horse world, there is disagreement about pretty much everything. Uh, I would say that the the government set population of about 27,000 is about the middle of the road in terms of the politics. There are a lot of people who say, just let them grow and don't manage them at all and let let nature sort things out. And there are people who say, round them all up. They're, they're just a bunch of, you know, sort of feral invasives that we need to get rid of. Invasives? Are they, are they pests? Are they nuisances to some people? Uh, certainly anybody who is in the uh, livestock business in the West does not like them, you know, because they're both going after the same grass. And that idea of being invasive was something I really thought hard about in my, my journey through wild horse country. So so here's an, an interesting part about wild horses. Okay, uh, They actually um, got their start in North America about 55 million years ago. And then they turned into this Serengeti of different horse species that roamed the entire continent ever since and spread all over the world. Now, I want to underline this because I think a lot of people have the impression that horses are not native to the to the United States, to, to North America, that they were brought here by uh, the Spaniards in particular. Th- that is true. But what you find is that there was a thriving horse population uh, a long ways back on this continent, that they were essentially eliminated, hunted, and then they return um, with colonizers bringing the horses with them. Uh, was that a revelation for you? I think somewhere back in, in high school biology class, we probably had a page on it. You okay. know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, honestly, when I first started uh, getting interested in wild horses, i have grown up in Colorado. I was born here. And until I was probably about 30, I had no idea that ho- wild horses still existed. Real wild horses, not some curated little herd in a national park, but free-roaming, honest-to-God, you know, descended from the Spanish horses. Um, so it got me to thinking, okay, do they belong here or not, you know, if they were introduced by the Spanish? And I, I have a, a telling uh, little factoid that I use that puts it in perspective. Sure. Um, so, like I said, they, they started here 55 million years ago. They were here until about 10,000 years ago when they disappeared, by the way, right about the time that um, uh, the first humans showed up in North America. Draw your own conclusions. Fossil records uh, demonstrate all this. Right. And so um, if, you, if you condense that whole history into a 24-hour clock, uh, the wild horse would have thrived in North America right until about 17 seconds before midnight when it would have disappeared right about the time that humans showed up, only to show up in the last second of the day with the Spanish. So the question is, with that history, 
are they native or invasive? Does that 16-second gap make them belong or not? One of the things that, that I found by talking to a biologist is that the landscape that they left is more or less the landscape they came back to. And that's maybe one of the reasons they were able to spread throughout the West so well and so quickly, and they still thrive today. And I suppose this question of whether they are native or not, or if they are invasive, really influences the policy and how to manage them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with David Phillips, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. The Colorado Springs uh, writer, journalist, uh, has authored Wild Horse Country, the History, Myth, and Future of the Mustang. This is incredibly controversial territory about how to manage these horses. And let's get to where they go once they're rounded up. Uh, right. So, and, and so this is this is becoming a big bill for the American people. Uh, like I said, the, the scraps of land that are wet left to them are, are not very productive and, and they're not very big. And so the government, I think in its wisdom, decided, hey, look, we have to have a set sustainable population. And if we get too many horses on the land, we're going we're gonna to remove them with helicopters. Okay, so they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to remove them and we'll let people adopt them. So every year people do adopt Mustangs and, and Mustangs have gone on to do very many wonderful and interesting things. They essentially tame them, you were yeah, saying? Yeah, you bet. Saddle horses um, uh, and, and revered by a lot of people for their stamina. But there have never been enough adopters to make up for the horses that we remove. So we essentially have government surplus of several thousand horses a year. Now, during the 80s and 90s, uh, the government quietly sold them to slaughter. And as the public learned more about that and, and became outraged, uh, that has stopped. So instead, what we do is we put them into what the government calls the holding system. And the holding system is essentially a network of uh, ranches, mostly in the Flint Hills of Kansas and Oklahoma, mostly owned by very wealthy men, uh, where we pay to store extra excess horses to the tune of about $50 million a year. Is it a nice life for them? It's gorgeous. It okay. is some of the most gorgeous country you can ever imagine. Now, uh, it is a very different life from being in the wild. They're separated by gender, of course, because you don't want horses in storage to reproduce. Um, but in a, in a very ironic way, they are now living in uh, areas where wild horses once lived and, and ranchers and farmers got rid of them. So now, because of their, their strange history, they've come full circle to places where they've been eradicated. You write in this book that only two animals have been protected by name by Congress. The bald eagle is one of them, and wild horses are the other. So this all stems from a declaration that the wild horse ought to roam free, at least in part. Then you say the American people uh, got a whiff of horse slaughter, and that practice stopped. What's the idea under this new administration about how to manage wild horses? And is there any talk of the availability of horse meat? Maybe that's an indelicate question in some circles. Well, so let me first say that I think that the reason that they are preserved like the, like the bald eagle and they are unique in that way is that they are probably the most American animal in our imagination. If you think about it, the wild horse is an immigrant. The wild horse has no special pedigree or status. It, it got what it got through work and grit. Uh, the wild horse symbolizes liberty. And so in a lot of ways, the wild horse is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It symbolizes our democracy. And that's why we've tried to protect it. 
the question is, how do you protect the idea while also dealing with the biology, these extra horses? Um, there's movement in Congress amongst Republicans and has been for a very long time to make it easier to sell horses to slaughter. So that if the slaughter weren't happening necessarily in the United States, what, you'd export horses for that? And that's what would probably happen if this is successful. Uh, right now, uh, domestic horses can be slaughtered and are sent to either Canada or Mexico um, for that to happen. And then most of the meat is uh, frozen and exported to either Europe or China. Um, so far, Republicans have been unsuccessful in that because it is such a difficult and divisive thing to vote for. Um, that the wild horses be sent to slaughter. That's right. I mean, imagine if you're a congressman who doesn't really have a stake in it and somebody asks you to put your name on the let's kill wild horses bill. Um, I think that people who put these bills forward are talking about fiscal responsibility. They say, hey, look, these are unwanted horses. Why are we paying $50 million a year for them? Um, let's sell them and get rid of this problem. And the opponents are saying, no, these animals are protected. These animals, this surplus was created through mismanagement, uh, and now you, uh, the government, must deal with it in a humane way. So there have been, they have been at loggerheads for more than a decade over this question. And as you say, there's not even agreement about what a sustainable population of horses is, what that number is that should be roaming wild. So that complicates the debate even further. I want to say that the legend of the white stallion seems to be a tale retold countless times with many variations and is really part of the history and the myth of the Mustang. Tell us about it. So this is one of the tall tales that showed up in the frontier, you know, uh, back before any of the West was settled. Trappers started telling a story about a ghost stallion who couldn't be caught. Uh, he'd be spotted on the edge of, of the horizon or tossing his tail, you know, on the edge of a canyon or something. But no matter who tried to go after him or no matter what technique they used, he would always get away. And, you know, it's one of those tales that grew in the telling. But it really said something about how we started to see the horse uh, as this, um, this creature that signified uh, liberty. And the funny thing is, so this, this tale of this white beast that would be pursued but could never be caught and said something about the men who chased it uh, eventually made it into the, the literary canon, but not as the white stallion. It, it made it in there as Moby Dick. Huh. Okay. I, I can see the, the parallels for sure. Yeah. And, and actually Melville mentions in his, in his book that he, he was familiar with the white stallion and, and he somehow, as a, a man who'd gone to sea, uh, transformed it into, into a different story. Well, let me go from the mythic to the brass tacks here. Aren't there other ways to control a wild horse population beyond rounding them up and shipping them to Kansas? Uh, we've talked on this program about innovative birth control, for instance, or using predators. I mean, could mountain lions be of some use in this regard? So the interesting thing is if you really want to preserve the horse, you have to both find a way to make the biology sustainable and you have to find a way to protect the idea. Because after all, what we are trying to protect is the idea, this embodiment of liberty, right? So for about 20 years, in very limited numbers, we've been trying to use birth control, essentially a, a dart gun that, that makes mares infertile for about a year. And that works really well. Um, it is kind of a pain to go out in the field and distribute, but so is rounding up horses by helicopter. So it could be done. Okay. But the problem is, is that you don't preserve the idea, right? How can you have a symbol of the wild and free be tightly controlled in such a, a fundamental idea as, as its, its reproduction? So that leaves us with mountain lions. 
And when you mention mountain lions amongst uh, uh, wildlife managers, they will immediately laugh you out of the room. It's seen as so preposterous that it marks you as a neophyte. How so? Uh, I just don't think they think it's viable. Um, but when I when I started looking at that question uh, in my book, what I noticed is that there are pages and pages of field biology studies where either people went out to study mountain lions or people went out to study wild horses. And in their months in the field, their research was interrupted again and again and again by the fact that mountain lions were eating so many wild horses that it was getting in the way of their data collection. So oh. here sort of the in the background of what they were trying to answer was this dynamic that they were also trying to ignore that mountain lions are eating uh, a lot of wild horses. Now, what's interesting about this is the BLM has never tried to understand and capitalize on this dynamic. They don't know how many mountain lions eat horses. They don't know where. They don't know why. Uh, all they say in their literature is essentially that it doesn't happen and therefore can't be looked at as a, as a management process. I imagine that there are any number of ranchers who would be afraid uh, that their livestock would be rendered vulnerable by mountain lions as well. That's part of this debate. That's right. Uh, where would I go in Colorado if I want to see a true wild horse? Where Where is wild horse country here? Uh, well, there's some really beautiful uh, herds in, in the state. Uh, the most accessible is probably the Book Cliffs, uh, the Little Book Cliffs, which is right above Grand Junction, just off of I-70. Um, uh, you can also go um, down to Disappointment Valley, which is, is more down um, in the, the southwestern corner of the state. Or you can go up uh, towards the, the Wyoming uh, border near um, Dinosaur. Um, all of these areas have places where you are fairly easily accessible. You can see the horses. Of course, you have to be careful not to get too close because they are really wild horses. But um, it's beautiful to see. Is the U.S. policy towards wild horses rational? Well, consider this. We've spent a billion dollars to round them up. We're spending a billion dollars to store what we've already rounded up. And if we want to get to a sustainable population, we're going to spend a billion dollars more to remove all for an animal that we're preserving because it's wild and free. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I looked at what could we do to encourage more mountain lions in more places. I'm not saying that they are the one easy solution. Um, but I think even if you had had mountain lions active in, in a third of these places, you could pretty much make your program sustainable and save tens of millions of dollars at the same time. Um, and it's something that, that not a single person in, in uh, the world of wild horse management is even looking at. And to me, that is not rational, and it needs to change. I think what's fascinating is that in, in making policy, you've got to deal with the reality, and you have to deal with the mythology and the symbol of wild horses. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much for having me on. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Dave Phillips of Colorado Springs. His new book is Wild Horse Country, The History, Myth, and Future of the Mustang. You can see photos of horse country and read an excerpt at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're going to do now what a lot of Coloradans are doing. Talk about the weather. On the front range, it was sunny and balmy. Then we got our first snowstorm, and now it's sunny again. 
Weather in this state is fascinating, to say the least, and it's been particularly of interest to Russ Schumacher since he was a graduate student at CSU. Now he's the new state climatologist, and he joins us from Fort Collins. Russ, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. You've been quoted as saying the weather and climate in Colorado are hard to understand sometimes. How so? Well, you know, we we if you travel across the state and you live here a while, uh, you just you kind of can get to experience this all the different uh, weather and 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 the, really the different climates that we have across the state from the you know the snow in the mountains to the to the the severe weather out on the plains and and everything in between. And so it uh, uh, trying to to kind of uh, put put a, a finger on all of these different aspects of our weather and climate can be can be a challenge but it's a really interesting challenge and one that we that we try to do at the uh, at the, the at CSU and in, in our atmospheric science department and at the Colorado Climate Center tell me your weirdest Colorado weather story so I think probably the one that comes to mind is so back in in 2003 in March we had the really big snowstorm right this was like 30 inches all up and down the front range um you know epic storm everything was shut down for for days and and we so my wife and I had gone to visit some friends in in Florida and I think I think it was spring break and and so we had been staying with them and this was of course the days before um you know everybody had internet everywhere and smartphones and everything and so mm-hmm. we had no idea this this storm was coming and and so we flew back from from Florida to DIA and got back in just the evening when when it was raining and kind of starting to turn to snow and we just barely made it back to Fort Collins but so anyway it was a uh, it was uh, one of those things that now now it's sort of hard to imagine going somewhere and and then not having any idea of what the what the weather was going to be like when you got there. So I think it shows how much both the sort of our our skill at making weather forecasts has improved, but also how how having this kind of ubiquitous technology uh, allows us to know what what to expect wherever we're going. There is a lot of climate news right now. It's been a deadly wildfire season in the West. Fires raging, of course, in California. Today, the Trump administration announced it's rolling rolling back the Clean Power Plan, uh, which connects uh, in many people's minds with climate as well. How much will climate change figure into this role for you as state climatologist? I mean, it's certainly one aspect of of what we do. Um, we we that's kind of one of the one of the core tasks of the of the climate center is monitoring the climate of our state, and so that involves, of course, you know, collecting and analyzing the routine observations that are collected. Um, you know, from government sources and and other places like that, but also running uh, a couple of 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 somewhat high profile monitoring systems that that we're responsible for. One of those, a lot of people have heard of, is is Cocoraz, the the Community Cooperative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, where people you know take rainfall measurements or snowfall measurements in their backyard. Um, and and this is now started here at CSU and now is a nationwide program. The other one is called COAGMET, the Colorado Agricultural Meteorological Network that's a little bit less well-known, but we're hoping to make it more well-known. It's a network of observing stations across the state, mainly in in agricultural uh, production parts of the state, um, but where we're really collecting a lot of, of good data that hopefully we can maintain for the long term to to monitor some of these changes. And so 
And let me just say, things, this is all citizen no, science. This mm-hmm. is all the notion of Coloradans, where they are gathering weather and climate data and helping give you a picture of weather and climate. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. And so we, we work with, you know, with those sources and, and those sources have great strengths, but also limitations as do other data sources. And so we, we try to, to make sense of all of that and, and then work with, with other uh, partners and, and stakeholders across the state that, that are interested in, in, you know, what that data is telling us. Help us understand uh, like what the mandate of the state climatologist is. I know you're associated with Colorado State University, so I'm guessing that you have your eye on agriculture and on farming. Um, is there anything like that the state says you must do this? Not really. It's it, 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 these positions are it, it, so. So I guess a little bit of history on this back uh, before the early 70s or so. These were sort of standardized national positions that were funded by the federal government where you had a state climatologist in each state. And then at some point there, that that kind of went away and each state was responsible for for doing this on their own. And, and for the most part, they ended up being associated with with meteorology or, or climate or uh, atmospheric programs programs at the at the ag school in 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 each state or the land grant school and so it, it's been uh, the climate center was founded in the 70s here at csu for the most part the 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 state climatologist and director of the climate center has been a faculty member in in the atmospheric science department at csu the exception to that was was over the last uh, uh decade or so where nolan duskin who is not a faculty member in our department but is you know i think by far the the most knowledgeable person about colorado and uh, weather and climate that 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 there is uh served in this role and and just made great connections across the state as you mentioned, with with agriculture, um, but also you know water issues are are really core to to what the climate center does as well. Monitoring precipitation, uh, you know, snowfall, snowpack, things like this, and 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 trying to hopefully uh, give a bit of a picture of of you know how those things are going to evolve in in the near future, in you know the next weeks or or months and then and then also you know in it more from the climate change perspective what what can we expect in colorado in you know 10 years or or a few decades or whatever russ schumacher is the new state climatologist and one more fact about him he's a former jeopardy champion you can see the score five thousand all right here is the clue In 2005, for what would have been her 100th birthday, the United States and Sweden issued stamps featuring this movie legend. Who is Greta Garbo? Greta Garbo it is. And now the last clue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Denver food writer got October 5th declared Rocky Mountain Oyster Day. We talked about it last week with Allison Reedy of the Denver Post, who'd never actually tasted the delicacy herself. An update now to that story in Loud and Clear. When she left our studio, Reedy went to the Buckhorn Exchange in Denver to taste bull testicles for the first time. All right, I'm going to start with the one with the most breading, a little bit of training wheels. Salt, pepper, hot sauce. Thank you. You're welcome. It's not that weird. Is it cliche to say it tastes a little like chicken? (laughs) 
And that was the culmination of Reedy's trek to find out how food holidays are created. She told us about the man who coordinates them, but a listener, Randy Welch of Denver, wrote in with more questions. Like, how does a food holiday differ from an official holiday? Randy, here's Allison's answer. The last time a president declared a food holiday was Reagan, I think back in 1987. So no, it's not really government-sanctioned, although some local governments will make proclamations. Welch also wanted to know a bit more about the keeper of the food holiday calendar, John Brian Hopkins. Hopkins started the Foodimentary blog with a food-a-day entry, and it got so huge that Google adopted it. So that's how he became the gatekeeper of food holidays. Lots of people still make unofficial days, usually food industry people who just want to promote their products. But Hopkins is Google official. Now a correction. The new poet laureate of the Western Slope, David Rothman, recently shared his ode to fly fishing. His poem is set on the Taylor River and contains these lines. The divide that runs like an enormous spine down the continent, reaching its highest point near here, creating and separating the headwaters into 10,000 brooks, streams, creeks, and rivers flowing to the Colorado and the Missouri. Listener Nelson Bonistro of Hygiene, Colorado, near Boulder, pointed out that on the east side, they in fact flow to the Arkansas, which is a tributary of the Mississippi, not the Missouri. Rothman says, I'm embarrassed I didn't catch that because I should know it. On the other hand, he jokes, I'm only the poet laureate of the Western Slope. If something on our show doesn't flow well, let us know. We also welcome your story ideas. Find all the ways to contact us at cprnews.org slash connect. Finally today, the French composer Alphonse Hasselmann was born in Belgium in 1845 and became one of the most renowned harpists of his era. He adapted music written for other instruments and taught countless students. More than a century after his death, this is a young harpist who continues to learn and take inspiration from Hasselmann. Fifteen-year-old Lily Primus recently visited the CPR Performance Studio to record Hasselman's Gitana. Primus was recently recognized at the American Harp Society's National Competition in Minnesota. She also performs with the Denver Young Artists Orchestra and is a 10th grader at Denver School of the Arts. There is video of Lily Primus' performance at cprclassical.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, and we're on Facebook, CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.